The rivalry between France and England, and later Great Britain, was like a seesaw. One side would go up, and the other side down. But invariably, just like a seesaw, whichever nation was up would go down, and vice versa. And so it was in the late 18th century. At the conclusion of the Seven Years' War in 1763, it was Great Britain who was firmly in the ascendancy, having defeated the French and gained control of both India and Canada to go alongside her American colonies. However, within a few short years, those very American colonies had rebelled and had successfully flung off British rule. The colonists didn't achieve their independence entirely through their own efforts. To defeat the might of the British Empire, it was always useful to have an ally, and Britain's greatest foe was more than happy to oblige. France. And whilst the French king, Louis XVI, did not gain any additional territories from his successful participation in the American War of Independence, he did have the satisfaction of seeing French troops uh, being at the uh, British surrender at Yorktown, and the British losing most of their sizeable North American empire. The British had most certainly had their wings clipped, but any bounce that Louis XVI had on that seesaw was short-lived. In 1789, he lost his throne and within three years his head in the French Revolution. The masses had overthrown the Ancien Regime. Freedom-loving men and women across Europe looked to the French example and wondered if they could achieve the same result in their own countries. And the ruling classes looked at that bloodshed in France and wondered if their turn was coming too. The French Revolution thus released a liberal movement in Europe and at the same time unleashed a reactionary backlash as well. A battle of ideas sprung up in Britain. Pamphlets raised the thorny questions about the role of the monarchy, exactly what freedom actually meant, and what was the balance between individual and collective rights. In 1790, Edmund Burke roundly condemned the revolution in his book, Reflections on the Revolution. He said that the events, events unfolding across the Channel would lead to tyranny and bloodbath if they were repeated in Britain. But within a year, his ideas were being refuted by English radical thinker Thomas Paine in his book, Rights of Man. Interestingly, Paine, the champion of both the French and American revolutions, was actually beaten in his rebuttal of Burke by a radical woman, Mary Wollstonecraft, who within a couple of years had also extended that debate in another pamphlet, The Rights of Women. The debates raged and tensions rose. Riots broke out across the country. One of the most serious was in July 1791 in Birmingham. A mob proclaiming loyalty to the church and the king attacked properties of radicals and dissenters. Dissenters were Protestants, but who weren't members of the Church of England, like Methodists and Baptists, including the home and library of scientist Joseph Priestley, which was burnt to the ground. During the coming decade, radicalism seized large parts of the population. The king, George III, was actually mobbed whilst in his coach on one occasion in the 1790s. Uh, the Royal Navy crews mutinied at Spithead. And in 1798, a major armed rising broke out in Ireland, led by the United Irishmen under Wolf Tone. However, whatever the violence in Britain, it paled into insignificance compared to what was going on across the Channel. In January 1793, King Louis was executed on the guillotine, and in a bid to both spread the revolution and also to protect what they'd achieved in France, the revolutionary government in France declared war on their old and reactionary enemy, Britain. Britain and France were to be on and off almost at war for the next 22 years. 
This war is often called the Napoleonic War, but it's not actually the case. At this stage, Napoleon Bonaparte was just one of many young army officers, and until he put, took power in a coup in 1799, it should be more correctly referred to as the French Revolutionary War. Anyway, that's a by the by. It was during this French Revolutionary War that Britain suffered her last invasion of the British mainland. In 1797, in an effort to take the revolution to Britain, the French decided a three-pronged attack on the British Isles. There would be an invasion of Ireland to support the United Irishmen. But also, confident that they would receive an enthusiastic welcome from radicals in mainland Britain, they planned a landing in the northeast of England at Newcastle and a landing at Bristol. The army at Bristol would then march north and capture Liverpool. As ever with planned invasions of Britain, the weather intervened, and, the th and of the three fleets, only the one heading for Bristol actually made a landfall. However, due to the weather, they had been prevented from entering the Bristol Channel, so they sailed round the coast of Wales, landing near Fishguard. Now, the bulk of this revolutionary army landing in rural West Wales were actually made up of convicts and supporters of the old royalist regime, so not exactly brimming with revolutionary fervour. Moreover, a merchant ship had recently been wrecked in the area, carrying a large quantity of alcohol. In something reminiscent of the classic comedy film Whiskey Galore, the local inhabitants around Fishguard had rescued the cargo, and now every farmhouse and dwelling in the local area was awash with booze. And into this scene strolled our French invaders. The fearsome invasion turned into a farce as the French helped themselves to the liberated alcohol and were in no fit state to take on the British Empire. In fact, when they saw a group of fearsome Welsh women advancing on them with their traditional costumes of red capes and tall black bonnets, the invaders mistook them for British redcoats and promptly surrendered to a lady carrying a pitchfork. And thus, ended the last invasion of mainland Britain. The French Revolutionary War through the 1790s pitted France against a host of European nations, although not always at the same time, including, well, the normal culprits, the big powers on the continent, uh, Russia, Austria, Prussia uh, and Britain, uh, but also uh, Holland, Portugal, Sweden, the Ottoman Empire. And through this decade, one French general started to shine above the rest, Napoleon Bonaparte. Having won stunning victories over Austria and conquered a large part of Italy, he now led an invasion of Egypt. It was in this campaign, having deposited his army ashore, that the French navy were decisively defeated at the Battle of the Nile by Britain's maritime answer to Napoleon, Admiral Horatio Nelson. Just 12 months after Nelson's victory at the Battle of the Nile, Bonaparte had seized control of the French Republic in a coup d'etat. From 1799, this war can effectively be called the Napoleonic War. It was a period in which Napoleon proclaimed himself Emperor of France and sought to extend his influence across Europe. He installed one of his brothers on the throne in the Netherlands and another on the throne in Spain. Having successfully defeated Austria once again, it was time for Napoleon to lead France on that game of seesaw with her old enemy, Britain. Now, unlike the chaotic invasion of Fishguard, Bonaparte was determined to do properly bring Britain to heel. And in 1803, he assembled an army of 60,000 seasoned French troops at Boulogne on the English Channel, with a serious plan to invade Britain. He had more troops at Boulogne than Britain had in her entire army. All he needed to do was get across the English Channel, 
Apart from the weather, that crossing had another challenge. The Royal Navy. Bonaparte needed the Royal Navy either to be at the bottom of the ocean or at least as far away from the channel as possible to enable his invasion barges to make the crossing unimpeded. He ordered his Admiral Villeneuve to break out of the British blockade in the Mediterranean and then head across the Atlantic towards the sugar-rich islands of the Caribbean. Now, as I've mentioned in a previous talk, the sugar islands of the Caribbean were a source of incredible important economic wealth at this time for both France and Britain. And any threat to the revenues flowing from those islands would force the British, whom Napoleon contemptuously referred to as a, a nation of shopkeepers, to react. They would have to send the Royal Navy to protect their trade. The plan worked. Nelson was ordered to give chase to the French fleet. By the time Villeneuve arrived in the Caribbean, he heard that Nelson was hot on his heels. Not keen to get into a battle with Britain's most aggressive and maverick naval captain, Villeneuve now turned tail and raced right back across the Atlantic to Europe, once more with Nelson in pursuit. Intending to sail to Boulogne to support his emperor, Villeneuve was thwarted by another Royal Navy fleet at the Battle of Finisterre and headed south to the safety of France's ally, Spain. And there he holed up in the naval base at Cadiz, with Napoleon getting more and more frustrated with him up in France. Finally, under pressure from the Emperor, and believing that Nelson was back in England, he put to sea. Unfortunately for Villeneuve, Nelson wasn't back in Blighty, but secretly waiting for him, less than 30 miles away. And on the 21st of October, 1805, the combined French and Spanish fleet met Nelson and the Royal Navy at the Battle of Trafalgar. In a bloody five-hour encounter, Nelson sunk or captured 19 enemy ships, without losing a single one of his own. But at the height of the battle, Nelson was mortally wounded, dying on his flagship, HMS Victory. Nelson's victory at Trafalgar put pay to Bonaparte's invasion plans. Britain would never face a serious invasion threat again until the Second World War. The loss of 19 ships was such a material blow to both the French and Spanish navies that they never again challenged the Royal Navy itself Back in 1740, when Rule Britannia had first been performed, the call for Britannia to rule the waves was a call for help, an aspiration. Now in death, Nelson had achieved that command. With the domination of the world's shipping lanes and her growing industrial might, Britain now moved into a position where the 19th century would be the British century. Thwarted at sea, Napoleon was nevertheless undefeated on the European continent, and soon after Trafalgar, he achieved one of his greatest victories at Austerlitz. But it was time for the seesaw to come down. In 1808, Napoleon turned on his erstwhile ally, Spain, occupying the country and installing his brother, Joseph, as king. The Spanish now fought their own war of independence against France, and just like the American colonists back in the 1770s, it would be helpful if they had an ally. And they found one in France's oldest and most bitter enemy, Britain. The ensuing Peninsular War saw a British army, eventually commanded by the Duke of Wellington, join the Spanish to drive the French back over the Pyrenees. At the same time, Napoleon launched his disastrous invasion of Russia. Defeated in the east, defeated in Spain, and with Allied armies advancing into France, Napoleon fled into exile on the island of Elba, just off the coast of Italy. But within 12 months he'd returned, and in a lightning advance, gambled on splitting and then defeating the British and Prussian armies 
uh, in what is now Belgium. On the 18th of June, 1815, he met the British, once more commanded by the Duke of Wellington, at Waterloo, just south of Brussels. Napoleon, with 72,000 men, outnumbered Wellington's army by about 4,000. The two armies battled all through the morning and into the afternoon, when the, the French finally captured a strategic farmhouse. Just when it looked like Napoleon would pull off another famous victory, indeed, messengers were already riding to Paris with that very news, the 50,000-strong Prussian army under General Blücher arrived. Weakened from a whole day's fighting with the British, and now outnumbered two to one by the British Prussian army, the French broke, leaving nearly 25,000 of their comrades dead, wounded, or captured. The British casualty rate was 25% which when you consider that the casualties at D-Day in the Second World War were less than 10%, shows just what a bloody battle Waterloo actually was. The battle was a decisive end for Napoleon Bonaparte. He was exiled to the tiny British-owned island of St Helena in the Atlantic Ocean. There would be no way back, and he died on the island in 1821. Britain came away from the Napoleonic Wars with an increased self-confidence, she also came away with additions to her empire, the spoils of war, most notably the Cape Colony in South Africa and Malta in the Mediterranean. But despite this increased self-confidence and mood of victory, storm clouds were growing. The Industrial Revolution was turning old rural communities upside down. Huge conurbations were rapidly growing, and a gulf between the haves and have-nots was ever widening. The end of the war created an economic recession and the demobilisation of the armed forces at the end of the war created an army of unemployed. And whilst revolutionary France may have been defeated, the ideas embodied in that revolution – freedom, equality, a desire to be involved in the process of running their country – was alive and well and even stronger than ever. The clamour for reform was growing, and the British ruling class were faced with a choice – repression or bending with the winds of change.